Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this Friday, we jet back to the 80s to talk about the release of Top Gun Maverick. Does the new Tom Cruise flick soar or die? And will a new generation flock to theaters the way many did back in 1986? We look at just how tough it's getting for prospective renters in this country to find a place to live, all the way up to landlords getting dozens and dozens of applications, even bidding wars. We talked to a former Texas prosecutor who's worked in Uvalde, site of that horrific school shooting this week that left 21 dead, including 19 kids. She talks about the anger over the delayed police response and why so many leaders in her state refuse to even consider discussing gun control. But first, the Supreme Court of Canada strikes down a law that allowed judges to prolong the time those convicted of multiple murders have to wait to be eligible for parole. We look at why the justices reached a unanimous legal decision on an often emotionally charged topic and what the impact will be. The question that's often a really emotive one, but also a legal one, what punishment do those who commit mass murder in this country deserve and what is allowable under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms? It's a complex question. And today, the Supreme Court of Canada actually delivered a unanimous ruling on the very issue. It found the life sentence with no eligibility for parole for 40 years, given the Quebec City mosque attacker who killed six Muslim men, Alexander Bissonnette, violates the ban on, quote, cruel and unusual punishment in the Charter. Now, obviously, it's hard to feel, impossible to feel, any sympathy for Alexandre Bissonnette, who shot and killed those men in a racist, hate-filled slaughter. But this isn't really about what punishment he deserves. His sentence stays the same, life. Still, at the Islamic Cultural Center of Quebec, disappointment. Mohamed Labdi, the mosque's president, spoke of the families of the dead now worrying about having to run into the killer one day on the streets of their city. Our uh, uh, deep concern is about uh, the, the orphans that will see the, the, murder, uh, the, murder, the murdering person in the, in the road of Quebec City tw- 25 years after, after this tragedy. Now, Bissonnette's eligible opportunity, or at least his, his chances of getting parole, are still extremely slim, whether it was to be reviewed after 25 years or 40 years or 80 years. His chances of getting parole are still very slim. Still, it's a big decision. It affects about 18 other cases, uh, those who've been sentenced since 2011 when this rule came into place from the Harper government. Uh, now, the government is reviewing the decision and argued in favor of giving judges more uh, discretion when it came to parole eligibility, which that former law did, the one that's been struck down. Uh, former Prime Minister Harper called it a grave injustice. Conservative MP and leadership candidate Pierre Polièvre vowed to invoke the nonwithstanding clause to put the rule back in place. So. Let's get the politics out of this because it always kind of ruins the conversation. Let's try to understand what the court decided and why, and really what the impact of this is actually going to be. To do that is Isabel Grant. She's a professor at the Peter Allard School of Law at the University of British Columbia, and she joins me now. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. This is always such a delicate issue, uh, often because it involves the most horrific of crimes. What is proper punishment, quote unquote? Uh, The Supreme Court though today was unanimous. It cannot be a de facto life sentence with no chance of ever getting out. Uh, Why was that? Well, I think it's important to understand what the Supreme Court said and what they didn't say. Mr. Bissonnette was sentenced to a mandatory life sentence for murder. That has not changed. The only question is, at what point in that life sentence will he be allowed to seek parole? That doesn't mean get parole. It means apply for parole. 
And what the Supreme Court of Canada said is if you delay that to the point where there is no possibility of release, that you are taking away all hope and dignity from him while he is incarcerated, and that that is cruel and unusual punishment. What they didn't say is that he should be released at any particular time. They didn't reduce his sentence. It's still a mandatory life sentence. Um, but what they said is you cannot take away even the possibility of release for someone who is able to rehabilitate themselves while, while incarcerated. Um, the 2011 change to the rules that was brought in by the Harper government uh, at the time was meant to be, quote unquote, tough on crime. Uh, but it did. It, what exactly did it allow judges to do that the Supreme Court today has said uh, violates the charter? So prior to these changes, if you were convicted of first degree murder, you would receive a mandatory life sentence with 25 years before you could even, again, apply for parole. Doesn't mean you'll get it after 25 years. It means you can ask for it. For second degree murder, um, the judge would set that period of time somewhere between 10 and 25 years. What the conservative government did under um, then Prime Minister Harper was say that if you commit more than one murder, you're convicted of more than one murder, judges could add those periods of parole and eligibility together. So they could, it would not be 25 years, hypothetically, it could be 50 years or 75 years or even 150 years in, in Mr. Bissonnette's case. And so what that means is for someone who is a young to middle-aged adult that there would be no possibility that they would ever be able to apply for parole. And that was the change. The court says now the law stands as it did prior to 2011 that someone convicted of first-degree murder can apply for parole after 25 years. Now, this is not a particularly, if I understand correctly, within, say, uh, civil law, this is not a particularly lenient uh, sentence, a 25-year, you know, a 25-year eligible, you know, having to wait 25 years to be eligible. It's not lenient at all if you look at it in comparative terms to other jurisdictions. There are some American states that have life without parole and some that have the death penalty. Obviously, those two regimes are harsher. But, but most European countries, for example, or that use a common law system, um, Canada is one of the harshest. And I, I just might say, too, that um, you know, a colleague and I did a study recently that showed that, um, you know, Indigenous people, for example, are, have a much harder time getting parole than other people. And those periods of time before parole have gradually just gone up and up and up over the past 30 years. So the Harper government was responding to something that wasn't really a problem. The other point that's interesting to note is that people who are paroled after being convicted of murder are less likely to reoffend than people convicted of most violent crimes. There just isn't a history in Canada of a real problem of people who've been convicted of murder being released and then reoffending violently. This does apply, I gather, retroactively. So there are others um, who will be able to uh, look to this decision at least to try to ask for changes. But that's all, you mentioned that's also not automatic. So if you are still what's called in the system, that means you haven't used up all your appeals and you still have time to appeal, you can, you can seek relief under this judgment somewhat automatically. 
for people who have exhausted their appeals or they've run out of time on their appeals, the court suggests that they are going to have to apply to a court under the charter, under the remedies provision of the charter, and ask for relief. It's not clear whether that's automatic, whether everyone will get it. It's, it's unfortunate, I think, that we put people in the position of, sort of, first of all, knowing about this judgment, having lawyers that they can reach out to, having resources to be able to do that. So I do think um, this is something the government should give some attention to about how are we going to deal how are we going to deal with people who are now serving sentences that the court has said are cruel and unusual? For all those, and, and there will always be, I mean, when you look at the crimes that this applies to, and they are rare, obviously, this is not, this uh, stacking, so to speak, of these of these uh, eligibility for parole is not a common occurrence. But for those who, who are outraged by not being able to deliver more severe punishment to those who've committed what we would consider to be more heinous crimes, uh, what do you tell them in terms of how the law works or how the charter works? I mean, I guess I would say a couple of things. I don't think people should be worried in the sense by this decision that somehow the public is endangered by it. People are still sentenced to mandatory life imprisonment, and if the parole board is concerned that people are not safe to get parole after 25 years, then they will not be paroled. And the parole board in Canada, um, it's not easy to get parole when you've been convicted of murder. So I, I don't think the public's at risk in that respect. I think when you think about what the court has said here is that all we're asking is, all the court is asking is to give people in that situation a tiny light of hope, a glimmer of hope, if you will. We used to have a faint hope clause up until the Harper government where people convicted of more than, sentenced to more than 15 years without parole could apply to a jury after 15 years and say, you know, reconsider it. You know, I've rehabilitated myself. And what that does is it gives people an incentive to behave while they are in prison. It gives people, it protects um, prison employees if people have an incentive. So I, I think that, that it's an important decision and one that needs to be looked at in the, in the broader context of what the court has done. They haven't done something really radical. Um, the Harper legislation was extraordinarily punitive and unparalleled in any of the jurisdictions that we normally like to compare ourselves to. So um, I don't think we should overstate the significance of the decision in terms of what it's going to mean to the public. I'm speaking to Isabel Grant, professor at the Peter Allard School of Law at the University of British Columbia. We're discussing a Supreme Court uh, ruling today, a unanimous ruling, striking down uh, a 2011 change to the rules when it came to sentencing for multiple murders, in which case uh, those sentenced to life in prison uh, for multiple murders were then uh, not given the opportunity to apply for parole within the 25 years that had been, or after 25 years, which had been the previous uh, rule. But these were then stacked now so that someone who had committed multiple murders would then have to wait. 25 years times whatever uh, to be eligible for parole. That was struck down today, and it, of course, was in the case of Alexandre Bissonnette, uh, the man responsible for six deaths, uh, shooting deaths at the Quebec City Mosque in 2017. And when we come back, we'll talk a bit more about what the reaction could be, because certainly we've seen a lot of political reaction to this today, uh, and see what next steps might look like. That's after this. 
I'm speaking with Isabel Grant, professor at the Peter Allard School of Law at the University of British Columbia. We're discussing a Supreme Court uh, ruling today, a unanimous uh, ruling, uh, striking down uh, a rule that had been brought in in 2011 by the Harper government that allowed judges to stack uh, parole eligibility for multiple murders. So after giving a receiving a 25 year a life sentence 25 years or a life sentence rather you'd be eligible for parole not after 25 years as the old ruling said but perhaps much longer and that today was found to be a violation of the charter of rights and freedoms uh isabel one one of the uh professor grant one of the uh uh one of the ideas put forth today was to use the notwithstanding clause pierre poliev said it today uh to try and change this ruling is that worth it is that even something that could be considered I mean, I I can't say whether politically that would be successful or not. I would be surprised if this were the federal government's first use of the notwithstanding clause. It's really important to remember that everybody convicted of, in this case, first-degree murder, has a mandatory life sentence. The Supreme Court of Canada did not touch that. So the parole board is fully within its powers to keep someone detained for the rest of their natural life if they decide that that is necessary. So... To me, it would be a puzzling first use of the notwithstanding clause, but that's really more a political question than a legal question, so it's difficult for me to answer that. Certainly in these cases, the politics and the law always collide. Uh, It does go to the very heart, though, of what parole is meant to be um, uh, within our legal system, And, and clearly what the justices said today, and unanimous decision is always worth noting, uh, they've essentially upheld the idea that that prison in this country is still meant to at least, even in the worst cases and with the faintest hopes, as you mentioned earlier, have some rehabilitative notion. Yeah, and I think that's important. And when you take away even the possibility of parole, you take away any incentive for someone to try to pull their life together while incarcerated. And and I think that's really important that you you give that glimmer of hope in a way that like they've done today, that doesn't necessarily endanger the public at all. We're not saying release people and we'll see if they can rehabilitate themselves. We're saying give people the opportunity to rehabilitate themselves while incarcerated. One of the cases, I mean, when you think about what the implications of this decision are, um, Justin Bork, who was a 24-year-old man um, who killed three RCMP officers in, in um, New Brunswick, was sentenced to 75 years of parole and eligibility so under the previous law, he would have been eligible for parole when he turned 99. So when you think about what that means to someone at 24 to say there is no chance that you can pull your life together um, and maybe make something remotely um, positive out of it. And now presumably Mr. Bork could reapply to a court and all the court would say is, yes, we, we will treat your sentence as life without eligibility for parole. Um, for 25 years, they wouldn't be saying, you know, contemplating releasing Mr. Bork. So I just think it's really important to keep in mind the scope of this judgment. For, for, for the non, for those who are not in the legal profession, though, there is always this idea that there are some crimes that are so awful that there really should be an option to lock someone up and throw away the key. And it, it you, you get the sense, and you know, understanding, of course, the, the confines of the charter. But one understands that in this, in these cases, like the Justin Bork case or uh, the case of Mr. Bissonnette, that there were many out there who thought that there was no rehabilitation here, that the, the really this should be lock them up and throw away the key. Um, but our legal system isn't built for that, is it? I mean, that's not the way the charter works. Well, it's also just not the way sentencing works. 
Um, keeping people incarcerated, yes, it, it extends the punishment. That's right. But it's not, in a very, it's not a very efficient tool for doing that. It creates dangers to people in those situations. It's extraordinarily expensive um, to keep someone, particularly people who are growing old, um, incarcerated. The costs of providing medical care and various other things um, can be hugely expensive for, for taxpayers. So I think, you know, I think it's important that the courts keep a glimmer of rehabilitation in the context of their sentences. And I think they've done that here. Isabel Grant, thank you so much for your insight on this. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Summer takes off. What's that? We put some skin in the game. Top Gun Maverick must be seen on the biggest screen possible. Damn right. Damn on your stick. We gotta move. No turning back now. Top Gun Maverick. There's the promo for Top Gun Maverick. I think they even brought back the voiceover guy from the 80s to do that one back from 86. I mean, this week, if you were watching the Battle of Alberta, the Oilers and the Flames brought back memories of the 80s with that freewheeling, freestyling, great hockey. And this weekend, you can go right back to 86 all over again uh, because that decade is literally roaring into theaters this weekend. Top Gun, perhaps one of the most iconic or 80s of 80s films, uh, is back. Top Gun Maverick, Tom Cruise too. He brings uh, his character back again, uh, Pete Maverick Mitchell or Captain Pete Maverick Mitchell, I should say. Um, so we're all excited about this, I would imagine. People have already seen it. It's going to be interesting really here because people my age remember it from the theaters back in 86. I don't know if anyone much younger remembers it. And obviously older folks have been a little less, a uh, little less eager to run back to the cinema since the end of the pandemic. Anyway, it's coming up for Memorial Day weekend. Haven't listened to another one of the promos. It all sounds pretty exciting. Your instructor is one of the finest pilots this program has ever produced. His exploits are legendary. What he has to teach you may very well mean the difference between life and death. Reputation precedes you. I have to admit, I wasn't expecting an invitation back. They're called orders, Maverick. Ah, the formula is still there, but is it still a winning one? More than three and a half decades later, Steve Stebbing is a pop culture expert. He joins me now. Uh, Steve, it's welcome to the show, and it's kind of exciting. It, it, certainly, the promos are good. <laughs> yeah, and you know, you know, Ben, I actually got to see it last night, and. Yeah. Um, it lives up to it. And it was a dicey gamble. I mean, cause this movie has been essentially ready to go for over two years. I think at this point that they had already slated it to come out. I believe it was May beginning of May, 2020, I think was the first day for it. Uh, so yeah, I mean, they held it back to get it, give it the best experience possible and the big screen or even bigger going to see it in an IMAX, is the way to see it because uh, easily said, this movie absolutely rocks in every way. 
Really? I mean, I, I, can, I, I gather there's very little CGI in it, right? They actually tried to make it as realistic as possible by doing it. Well, realistic. It is realistic because it is real to some extent. Yeah. Honestly, if there is CG in this movie, it is seamless to the point that I honestly couldn't tell you what was real and what wasn't, uh, especially in the third act, which is so real and immersive feel, feeling that you're literally white knuckling your seat watching this film. You know, I was just curious because, of course, I saw the original in the theaters way back mm-hmm. when I'm dating myself, but, uh, you know, 1986. And I, I look back to see what the the critics thought of it because I remember the critics not being particularly unimpressed, but they weren't so impressed either. So uh, Siskel and Ebert's review was, movies like Top Gun are hard to review because the good parts are so good and the bad parts are so relentless. <laughs> but uh, he said the dogfights are absolutely the best, in Cl- best, best since Clint Eastwood's electrifying aerial scenes in Firefox from 1982. But look out for the scenes where people talk to one another. So yeah. I was wondering if it was similar for this one or they found a better formula to make those non-flying scenes work too. I think they embrace uh, what the fans loved about the original film, because the the cool thing about this movie is uh, it does have that reverence and love to every the the whole foundation of what it came from, but it also is able to push itself into being a bigger echelon of film. Easier said that this is a better movie than 1986's Top Gun. It feels more grown up. It feels like it has that. 30 years of experience and it actually manages which is oddly enough to be cinema like which really kind of blew me away like it it kind of exists like i think it exists as action film cinema some of the best in the last 20 years Oh, that's, that's, that's a high praise indeed. Because remember the first one was a really great action movie. Just everything mm-hmm. in between felt a little bit like it was, it was all just teeing up for the, you know, teeing up for the, uh, for the big moments in the air. Right. It, uh, yeah. The, yeah. But this, this um, one focuses more on the, the, the big character moments. And I will say that there's a scene in this movie and without giving anything away that is yeah. possibly one of Tom Cruise's greatest moments on film. Really? Because I was going to, that's what I wanted to, yeah, Yeah. I wanted to, that I, tell me a bit about the Tom Cruise, because this is a risk for him too. I mean, he's not, he's 57 now, Mm -hmm. um, being in an action movie like this is, it's never, I mean, he's done, obviously the Mission Impossible movies have done great, uh, but this is always a chance. So does he, does he, uh, does it succeed for him? I think it does. And I, and besides the Mission Impossible movies, he's not really a sequel guy. Like, uh, I mean, Jack Reacher, Never Go Back was another one of the, his sequels, and it, it didn't pan out. It was part of, like, the odd, bad time in his career when he did The Mummy and he did that film. So it was more of a gamble for to grab another one of his franchises and to be like, can we do another film, especially 30 years out? Yeah. So, um, well, what about the music? Because the music was sort of an iconic part of the first one. Um, does it, does it, does it work again in this one? I I think it does. You get to hear those squealing guitars, like really quickly into the film to kind of set you up and give you that tone that you are back, back in Top Gun. Um, and yeah, I, I think that it still plays with the same stylings of the Tony Scott original, um, and yeah, it, it, it just hits so well. Like it just feels like, you know, obviously time has passed, but you're still, you still got that same feeling. Do you think, I mean, they would have had to try to walk the line between appealing to the audience that liked the first one while engaging an audience that may not have seen the first one, or at least may not have seen the first one on the big screen. Uh, that's not an easy line, line to walk. 
No, no. I mean, and we've already seen movies play with nostalgia and fail. Um, so it's like, can can you do it properly while kind of wrapping in a new audience? Uh, and I, I think it does it well enough while uh, kind of keeping uh, the pieces fresh from the first film that you can engage a new viewer with, that they know what's going on, what the relationships are and everything, and what the end goal is. This is a pretty, I mean, I was reading that uh, the box office has been a bit low since the new Doctor Strange came out last week wasn't so good. I guess Hollywood too, uh, after a couple of tough years, is also looking uh, for this one to hit big. Yeah, I mean, this is, I think this is going to bring the dads back. This is, this is like, this is, <laughs> this is dad rock, the movie. And, you know, I think, I think it's going to bring them back. Uh, are you expecting a lot of, I'm wondering a lot of, of a lot of dads are going to show up with the aviators and the, and the, and the bomber jacket on. That's, that's what I was wondering. I, I think it's entirely possible. Cause I will say I live in a small town in BC and, and the movies are really never like packed. My screening last night was to the gills. So like it, it's going to bring people back. I think. Always a good sign. I, I was wondering, I mean, who is the, and I hope this doesn't give away anything, but who is the enemy in this one? <laughs> because the old one was easy. It was Russia. It was the Soviet Union yeah. in the 80s. But who who's the enemy this time around? There, there's a vagueness to this. There, there's a definite <laughs> vagueness to it. Uh, it it's acceptable. I, I totally take it as acceptable. But basically, let's say, um, secret, impenetrable base filled with a n- nuclear substance that threatens the world. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, because clearly they couldn't make it. I mean, it certainly couldn't be China. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be allowed to release the movie there, which would be bad nope. news for the for the box office. Um, and it can't be. Well, interesting. Well, I, we'll leave it at that because I don't want to give too much of it away. Uh, so, so in terms of sequels, and you mentioned this a bit earlier, but in terms of sequels to big movies, how would you rank this one? Uh, like I said, this this is it surpasses the original, and that's something that is incredibly rare in our sequel-driven um, high-end box office. And the fact that they're able to bring everybody back and then expound on that and make it infinitely better uh, is something that I honestly never expected. And and I gather there's a lot of sort of references back to the original for those of us who are nostalgic for the original. Oh, yes, including a beach sports scene for everybody. So, I mean, uh-huh. it's, it's great. I guess they don't play a jukebox anymore, though, right? Those must be gone by now. Uh, I can't give all the way, all the secrets away, Ben. Don't there give are, them all. There away. are so many Easter eggs. <laughs> as long as he doesn't make a sequel to Cocktail, I think uh, Tom Cruise is in good shape. Um, hey. I don't, I, Cocktail wasn't so bad, but I don't think I'd want to see a second one. I'd love to see Brian Brown in anything these days, honestly. So true enough, true enough. Um, <laughs> perfect. So there you go. High, high praise. And, and by the way, uh, in this case, uh, Steve's not alone. The reviews for this movie and the audience reaction to this movie has been extremely positive, uh, which is always interesting for these blockbusters because you never do know when they come out. They uh, some of them get widely are widely enjoyed, but not much loved in terms by the critics. This one seems to be making everyone happy for a, a little '80s nostalgia. Coming up, speaking of the '80s, some of the best movies of the '80s or early '90s um, starred Ray Liotta, whether it be uh, Field of Dreams or Goodfellas particularly. He passed away, of course, uh, yesterday at the age of 67. And we'll talk a bit more about uh, his legacy after this. When I was broke, I would go out and rob some more. We ran everything. We paid off cops. We paid off lawyers. We paid off judges. 
Everybody had their hands out. Everything was for the taking. And now it's all over. Ray Liotta. Uh, Goodfellow's clearly his most famous role. But um, he passed away yesterday at the age of 67 uh, in the Dominican Republic where he was shooting a movie. One of those actors who who everyone knows. He, he never made it really big. Uh, but certainly everyone remembers him from something. I mean, speaking of 86, when Top Gun came out, I remember seeing him in Something Wild with mm. Melanie Griffith where he plays her husband and he was great in that but uh i didn't know much about him and then obviously um in goodfellas uh he, he leaves behind a pretty interesting legacy as one of those one of those character actors that people really remember absolutely dependable um is one of the words that come to mind for sure uh and i mean besides something wild he like something wild feel the dreams and goodfellas were really his start those are really his first big three roles uh, with the star-making moment coming with Goodfellas. And, yeah, he's just one of those actors that you know once he's an ensemble that it's going to, like, he's going to be able to elevate the film just by being in it. I got carried away there and forgot to mention I was speaking with Steve Stebbing, pop culture <laughs> expert from here at BC. I got I got Ray Liotta there for a minute. What I I didn't know a few things about about his career. A that he had been on another world that I didn't mm-hmm. know uh, for quite a few years actually, uh, and that B he hadn't been in a movie till he turned thirty, which is which is pretty old for an. I mean, it's it's getting later in a career for an actor, and that was something wild. So I, was, I guess it was kind of make or break for him on that one. Absolutely. I mean, those those kind of acting stories are few and far between. I mean, just off the top of my head, I think Michael Shannon is one of those that that started later in his career. Um, Ben Mendelsohn, uh, as far as uh, uh, big Hollywood movies. Uh, Yeah, I mean, and and it's funny because all the actors that I mentioned that I think about that are all those great, gritty character actors. And uh, Leota is, uh, as far as the leading man, he also, he's just commanding any time he was there. Because uh, there's there's many movies that just his performance alone, it makes an immediate favor for me. Yeah, I remember him in Hannibal, obviously, and some other things. Um, one of the things that I also read about him that was interesting is that after Goodfellows, clearly he could have just played that character for a very mm-hmm. long time, but he didn't want to. And I guess later in life, he he looked back on that and thought that maybe he shouldn't have been so picky about who he was and wasn't going to play, but he didn't want to be typecast. But I mean, he did end up picking some very interesting role, roles and diverse roles. I mean, right after that, he did... Uh, a personal favorite of mine, I don't think it gets enough love, but it's Martin Campbell's sci-fi action film, No Escape, which is right. just such a cool movie from 1994 that I love. We'll have to, you know, I, I don't think I've seen that since 1994. <laughs> I'll have to, right? I'll have to, uh, yeah, no, absolutely. A, a good one. He, I, I guess he was also busy of late, though. He had continued to be a successful working actor right up through uh, through now, even though perhaps some of those movies weren't uh, weren't big-name movies. Well, I, I, he did the Sopranos prequel film. He played a dual role in that, which I, I didn't know heading into it that Ray Liotta was in it. So I was kind of surprised by that one. And uh, yeah, just like a bit stuff popping up. I mean, he even did an Adam Sandler movie a couple of years ago, the Hubie Halloween. So he was just kind of like, looks like he was just doing work for him and picking, still picking what interested him and wanted to work with the people that he hadn't worked with before. So he was very eclectic in that way. Of course, uh, his passing brought up that age-old, age-old debate. What is the best gangster movie of all time? Because many people will say it's Goodfellas. Uh, I'm partial to the first Godfather, but uh, but Goodfellas certainly certainly has a claim to the title. 
I, I really like Godfather. Uh, I mean, uh, Goodfellas, but um, I'm a Godfather two guy. I really like yeah. the De Niro part of the story. Um, but I, I mean, it, it's such a varied genre. There's so many little ins and outs and subgenres within it. But I mean, yeah, Scorsese and Coppola kind of got the it by the reins at this point. Still, I mean, decades and decades afterwards, they're still kind of the, the benchmark. I understand that Coppola, uh, at one point while he was filming, waiting to film the rest of Apocalypse Now, sat down and edited The Godfathers into sequence. So you could actually see the De Niro part first and all of one and then the second part afterwards, uh, which I always thought might be interesting because you're right. The second film is fantastic. Uh, probably a better movie than the first one in many ways. I mean, we'll, we can easily both say that it is better than the third movie. It is, it is, although the third one, oddly enough, which I saw at the time when it came out and it was, you know, it was disappointing, needless to say. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. if you look back at it now, it's actually not that bad a movie and there's been kind of a, a a reconsideration of it slightly. Well, actually, and Coppola re-edited it recently into the Godfather Coda, which came out on Blu-ray probably almost a year ago now. And it actually makes it marginally a better film. Uh, just with kind of reordering the sequences and everything, it has its dull patches still to it. But I mean, that helicopter uh, hit on the whole family in the hotel is still insanely well done. Andy Garcia was was really very good in that movie. I thought he, uh, you know, underestimated. I mean, underrated because the movie was always so bad. Steve Stebbing, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. And I, clearly, um, you know, Top Gun Maverick is worth the flight. So to speak. yeah. Everyone should go see it. Uh, Thanks for having me on, Ben. I appreciate it. Imagine most of us have a pretty endless or boundless fascination with real estate. Well, you know, in my case, I'm a renter. I do own a home in Ottawa that I've had for years, but I still rent here in in Victoria. But real estate stories, it doesn't matter whether it's housing prices trends or rental trends, you tend to read them, or I do at least. I always find it really fascinating to see what's going on. So this one I found really interesting. So here's, here's the premise. Limited inventory, bidding wars, people left dejected and stressed by the whole process, wondering if they'll have a roof over their head. And we're not talking about buying a home. We're talking about renting one or renting an apartment these days in places like Toronto and Vancouver. Prices are rising again and fast, almost back to pre-pandemic levels in places such as Toronto and expected to surpass them soon. And it's creating a really tough market for potential renters, a really competitive market for potential renters. And of course it puts landlords in the driver's seat so they can pretty much pick and choose who they want. Well, more on this now is Brendan Cowens. He's vice president of sales at property.ca in Toronto. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate it, Ben. What's been going on? I mean, we, I think anecdotally we've seen prices really jump in the rental market, specifically in Vancouver and Toronto. Is that in fact what's happening? That's exactly what we're seeing here, Ben. Absolutely. So, especially within the last few months, you know where we were in May, and um, you know, in talking to many of my colleagues, you know, and we have almost 300 agents with us here at this brokerage, where I'm the VP. In liaising with them, you know, we hear various stories, but I know that within the last couple of weeks, especially, it's uh, it's, it's been it's been ramping up significantly. What kind of changes are we seeing? I mean, uh, without, I don't know if you know the specifics of the jump in, in rents, but what kind of changes are we seeing in what people are paying for uh, a standard one-bedroom, two-bedroom apartment? Yeah, good question. So just on average, I mean, we, there's a report that came out from the Toronto Real Estate Board here. And, you know, just 
for, for, for comparison, based on what you, you've asked, data-wise, we have seen in Q1 for 2022, a significant jump. We're talking 17.8% in, in increase for rental rates for one-bedrooms. We're averaging you know, about 2100 In fact, the actual number is $2,145 uh, for an average one-bedroom. And the two-bedrooms, uh, we're looking at just over 2800 for Q1 of 2022, 2022. Now to compare that to the to this time last year, um, it would would be a 17% deduction on that. And you know we're coming very close to the pre-pandemic timeframe. So Q1 of 2019 mm-hmm. is the last time we saw numbers like that. And the peak just before the pandemic pandemic was Q3 of 2019. So really, we're seeing everything jump back. Do you get the impression that it's going to continue to rise? Uh, that certainly seems to be the premise, that these these uh, rental prices are going to continue to go up quite quickly over the next little while. Yeah, that's that's definitely what I'm, uh, I anticipate. You know, mm-hmm. uh, we already know that there's m- many different factors that come into play. Uh, some of them, of course, are immigration that's coming in. Mm-hmm. Uh, we already know that the government plans to bring in 400,000 uh, each per year into the country, most of which end up in Ontario, a good chunk end up in the GTA, the greater Toronto area. So, you know, supply and demand, um, some some of these newer immigrants, and I was an immigrant a few years ago. Um, I understand this game for sure. So, you know, coming in, they don't necessarily buy right away. So you'd want to rent. Uh, the supply and demand, going back to that, there's not, we, we can't keep up with the demand in terms of the amount of new units that do come on the market, right? Uh, we also see in, right, at the same time, increasing infl- in inflation and also um, interest rates. So that would then take out a good sector of purchasers. So some people who would want to purchase, they probably hold off for now and then they, they themselves would want to rent and increases in, in the rental amounts, especially within the core, I, I anticipate that to continue going up. Um, the amenities have reopened. Everything is starting to happen. The people that were in the suburbs or decided to buy or rent or live outside of the city, whether it's with your family members or not, they're, they're coming back into the city closer to the core. Their offices have reopened. Yes, you may be able to work remotely, but it's not every day now. It's You may have to come into the office one, two, three times a week, you know? Right. Um, this would... I mean, this is really just a question of supply and demand. Is, is it sort of basic economics here? I mean, you've mentioned that rising interest rates, and certainly if fewer people are buying, they're not leaving their rentals behind either or vacating their rentals. Uh, but really, it's a supply and demand issue, uh, as, as simple as that overall? It's, 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 a, it's a great contributor. Um, I think the same thing would apply for Vancouver side as well. Um, you know, these are the two hottest cities here in terms of many different factors. But, you know, Toronto, Vancouver. Yeah, you know, Ben, it, it kind of just boils down to that, my friend, that honestly, the underlining reason, that's what I'm seeing. Right. This certainly puts renters in a difficult situation. I know that um, that you've spoken about this in the past, but even someone who has never had a problem renting before is sort of the, the, the five-star, the gold-star tenant, this time may find things a little more competitive out there. Yeah, so I wouldn't say right now we're at a point where they have never experienced this because pre-pandemic, the numbers were high as well, um, as high as they are now. In fact, there are periods of time where it's higher than it is 
as as of today. Now, as we continue through the rest of 2022 into 2023, we'll see what happens there. But you know, people have paid this type of money before. Uh, we do, you know, it's not all doom and gloom during the pandemic. We do. There's definitely quite a bit of tenants who got super lucky. Uh, lot, lots of landlords had to take a big price cut, and uh, some of these tenants have locked themselves into that. Right. So, um, it's it's not at the point right now where it's super super hard to get in for everyone. But I do foresee that that can happen. Um, for those who are not prepared, though, Ben, going back to your question, yeah, it can be really tricky. So no longer is it okay to have um, not all your documents ready to go. You know, if you're ready to secure a unit, you see the unit first. And that was happening in the just even last year. You know, you could go and see a couple of properties. You take your time, you pull your credit report, you get your letter from uh, your employer, you put your things together, you apply for the unit the next day or the next two days, you think about it over the weekend. Now, that's not happening anymore, right? It's it's yeah. definitely has, has picked up and the landlords are becoming a lot pickier at this point. It reminds me of those stories of New York where you'd have to carry around bundles of cash to pay your, the moment you saw a place you liked, you had to pay the deposit right there. And then um, <laughs> landlords though, in the driver's seat, it certainly puts landlords in a situation where they can be more selective about who they're renting to. 100%. Absolutely. And I've, and I've seen it, you know, I've, I've spoken to some of my colleagues here and, you know, we have some listings representing the landlords and they, they ask us to assist them with getting tenants. And, you know, even a month ago, I remember a story where one of my colleagues, she she had in a period of a week over 55 showings, uh, 20 plus applications in terms of, and, and, and the landlord had a very hard time choosing, right? People were paying more than asking. Um, I'm seeing opportunities now where the landlord set offer dates, right? So you go on the market at a particular price. You said, I'm going to give you X amount of days for the market to see it. And then on another day, I'm going to just review everything instead of first come first service. So we're seeing that kind of strategy happening within the rental market as well. That's, I mean, that sounds like the how the sales market in the past, right? That, that sure. it's become that competitive. That's, um, yeah. that's, it's sort of a scary, scary proposition. If you're looking to rent that you're going to be in such a competitive process, because often, as you know, uh, I rent to it um, here own elsewhere mm-hmm. but but you you can be on a pretty tight timeline when you're looking for a place to rent yes absolutely so it is it would behoove you not to be fully prepared right mm-hmm. you have to certainly go out there with everything in play right whether it's the references uh, we mentioned before letters of employment if you're self-employed you know make sure you have all the documents the proof of income uh credit scores, if your application status is not that strong, then consider bringing in guarantors or other people with you to be on the, on the documents as tenants as well. So preparing yourself is super necessary, Ben. I'm speaking with Brendan Cowens. He's vice president of sales at property.ca. He's speaking to us tonight from Toronto. We're talking about the red hot rental market, uh, specifically in Toronto and Vancouver, where we're seeing landlords really in a situation in the driver's seat these days with uh, supply very low and uh, rental prices climbing quickly. And just how important it is for uh, prospective renters to be prepared to enter into what is a very competitive market after specifically during the pandemic when things were uh, relatively easy for renters and, um, and just that it might not get any better anytime soon. After this, we'll talk a bit about housing prices because we are seeing different impacts uh, since the rise of interest rates. We're expecting another 
interest rate hike coming up very soon. And just what kind of impact that's having on the specifically very hot housing markets in both Toronto and Vancouver. That's after this. Speaking with Brendan Cowens this half hour, he's the vice president of property.ca in Toronto. We were talking about uh, just the, the skyrocketing or the spiking of rentals costs back to where they were before the pandemic, really, but looking like they might surge ahead of where they were before the pandemic and just how competitive that's made the rental markets in uh, in those big markets. Uh, Brendan, you mentioned it earlier uh, because of, of people not being able to leave their rentals to buy houses because of interest rates climbing and so on. Uh, what are we seeing in the, in, in the housing market over the course of Q1 and into the spring this year because usually it's a very very popular time it it, it is uh very good question it, it is typically a very popular time especially the spring season where we'll see pre-pandemic a lot of our listings coming up at this point it's usually the hottest time of the of the year right now during the pandemic a lot of things change especially in toronto and no vancouver especially as well uh in comparison to the rest of canada these things did happen so we did see significant growth in terms of new listings at different times during the pandemic i know in 2021 we had some odd times where there's crazy spikes in terms of sales especially even this year uh, january and february in toronto i mean it was super super tight everything was going very very quickly houses were selling in a matter of hours after being on the market for you know exorbitant prices more than the latest comparable uh, that has toned on quite a bit uh ben in terms of what we're noticing now in may as that kind of started you know we saw it in the market within a march aprilish but definitely may being you know hands-on in the ground the ground we, we're noticing that there's a significant difference in terms of being able to um acquire properties uh, especially if you're looking at the decreases that have happened from january till now year over year we're still up but within the quarter yes there have been some dips where are you seeing it uh, specifically? Is it in detached single-family homes? Is it in yeah, condos? Yeah, yeah, good or... question. So townhomes and detached homes are taking the biggest hits. Uh, the condo market, uh, surprisingly, are actually not surprisingly to mm-hmm. some because a lot of the condominiums, the, well, at least the, the, the majority of them, are in the core, right? So within the core, we're seeing not the exodus that we noticed over the last year and a half. We have people coming back in. And those are a bit sturdier, right? The condo prices. But the biggest hits for sure we're noticing are, are within the townhomes and, and, and the detached homes. But still above where they were a year ago, obviously. Oh, as yeah, you, as you mentioned, yeah. Uh, Without a question. It's still, it's still up year over year. Uh, we're expecting another interest rate hike uh, next week, I believe. Um, do you see this having a, a further cooling impact on, on things? Uh, and and how, does that, how will that look, do you think, to someone looking to buy a home? Yeah, no, very good question. So where were we? We're at some points where people are getting some interest rates, uh, variables at low ones, 1.3, 1.4, definitely 1.4, 1.45. I saw a lot of those. So let's just say average 1.5, people were able to get mortgages. With the rest of the proposed interest hikes, you know, we could end up at 
high threes, you know, 3.75, maybe, maybe even 4.5, depending on the rest of the increases for the rest of the year. Some of the fixed rates I'm already seeing over 4%. So, you know, if you're looking at someone who was able to purchase with 1.5% interest rate, um, and then they wait until it's, let's say, hypothetically, 4.5%, the ability to buy a property significantly differs. I mean, we're talking hundreds of thousands. And, and that was, it's going to be very difficult for, 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 for first-time buyers especially. And, and probably everyone who, who wants to get into not just the first property, maybe you want to upsize to just a little bigger. You know, you have a one-bedroom and you want to get into a two or two-plus den, or maybe you want it to make a crossover into a semi-detached or a townhome. That may become somewhat more difficult for for those individuals. Do you think that will drive continue to drive prices down, or at least cool the market off a bit? Yeah, I I, I see some seat happening already. Uh, I think it will taper off. Uh, there'll be a lot less competition. You know, I dare not say it would be a balanced market, but it, it's heading. To, it would head towards that. I think the sellers will still ultimately, for the rest of this year, have the upper hand. Uh, in terms of the months of inventory, it's still relatively low. The last time I checked, it was you know depending on the neighborhoods, you know one and a half months supply to maybe pushing two and a half months supply in certain neighborhoods. So until I start to see four or five months of inventory left um you know it's still in the hands of the seller but it's just not flying off the market that like what we were seeing in january and february no and, and i guess that does have a so an advice if any advice to, to to sellers and buyers out there just about how they should approach a market that seems to be continuously changing these days very quickly it seems like it changes every five four or five months we're talking about it heating up or cooling down or uh, it's certainly been a uh, tumultuous time yeah, no, it's a very good question, and it's definitely based on the individual. Uh, a question that I like to ask my clients is, okay, well, why are you doing this? Right, the, the, the reason why they need to do this or want to sell or buy needs to be pretty strong, right? Because once that's in play, then we, 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 we can take the next move and start talking statistics and the numbers that they're so supposed to be getting from making this purchase or making the sale. Brendan Cowens, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. I appreciate that, Ben. Appreciate it. There's been a shocking admission by Texas law enforcement about the school massacres in Uvalde. Steve McCraw, who's the director of the Texas Department of Public Safety, says the incident commander made the wrong decision not to breach the classroom sooner because they thought no kids were at risk. Police lingered for more than an hour outside locked classrooms at Robb Elementary. Well, dozens of students were trapped inside with the shooter, even as some of the kids made 911 calls begging for help. A decision was made that this was a barricaded subject situation. There was time to retrieve the keys and wait for a tactical team with the equipment to, to go ahead and breach the door and take on the subject at that point. That was the decision. That was the thought process at that particular point in time. 19 kids, two teachers killed by that 18-year-old gunman. The deadliest school shooting in the U.S. in more than a decade. Meanwhile, the NRA conference began in Houston today. Senator Ted Cruz was once again avoiding the elephant in the room, no pun intended. Gun control instead dragging out this old and tired line. Ultimately, as we all know, what stops armed bad guys is armed good guys. 
which is remarkable considering in Uvalde, we just witnessed that not happening. Um, you know, what stops armed bad guys is not giving armed bad guys military assault rifles, especially 18 year olds. Anyway, uh, with more on all of this, the controversy over the police response and the debate over guns, the good guy versus stopping the bad guy with the gun. Joining me now is Texas criminal defense attorney, Sarah Spector, a uh, former prosecutor in the 38th district, including Uvalde. Thanks so much for your time tonight. You're welcome. When you first heard about this earlier this week, it must have been such a shock considering you know the community so well. You know, it's so sad, but, um, you know, I live in Midland now. Uh, I'm a defense lawyer in Midland, and we went through our own shooting um, two years ago on Labor Day weekend. I, You know, I saw the news very, I, I was one of the first people on Twitter to break it, maybe close to the first. And I, cause I'm still friends with a lot of people in Uvalde on Facebook and it popped up that um, from the school, I, I'm, I'm, I, I get the newspaper um, postings and it said possible shooter in school district um, lockdown. And I put it on Twitter, you know, I was sad, but I wasn't shocked, you know, did you, I mean, it, it turned into something. I remember seeing those early reports of a few casualties and it turned into something so much more horrific. So I, shocking. That was shocking because I thought it was all contained and I went back about my business. And then about four o'clock, I looked at the news headlines. I was shocked. Clearly an active shooter situation is, is something that's always going to be difficult and unpredictable. Uh, but with the benefit of hindsight, which we do have, where do you think when you look at it, where where were the mistakes made? And and it was it surprising that those mistakes were made. So I, I I've been a prosecutor in, in Texas for I for I was one for 17 years and I and I my my career spanned mostly very rural communities. And the challenge with rural communities in Texas is most of them don't have a lot of money and most of them don't have money to pay officers a lot of money so you're not going to and they don't require a lot of education and usually when an officer when when it went if, if an officer is good and, and becomes a detective uh, they usually are are taken away from these small towns into bigger cities where they pay more and so your your local law enforcement in these rural communities are not top-notch and and so no it's not surprising um, the response to me, because just because I was a prosecutor in these rural areas and as a district attorney, you norm you get reports and your and your job is, oh, you know, these aren't these aren't, you know, you have to you have to send the reports back and tell them you have to investigate this better because it's not, you know, we couldn't try this case. And so you know about what you're you're expecting. And and so no, it wasn't surprising to me, you know, it wasn't shocking that they didn't respond as well as other, you know, we, we've seen other school shootings where the response was different. Right. And they obviously made a lot of mistakes and, you know, not the, the 19, we found out 19 officers were outside the classroom as some children were bleeding out. And as other children were calling for 911 to me, it's not shocking. I know it's shocking to a lot of people, but it's not shocking to me. I don't expect much more of um, those of of that police department or others that I've, you know, some others that I've worked with. 
good guys with guns aren't necessarily going to be able to save you. They're they're not the people we see on these television shows. They're they they're fallible, and and they and of course these people were. And the frustrating thing about this is that they don't admit their fallibility, and they try to cover it up here, right? So we didn't know what really happened. So so the reality is, you know, they're fallible. I don't blame them. Obviously, it's to me the 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 hands the blood on the are the hands of our um, governor, and Governor Greg Abbott, um, Ted Cruz, the NRA, and the gunmen. I don't, I don't think we can blame police departments for their mistakes because uh, I mean it's they definitely need to be held accountable. We need to see where they went wrong so that next time, unfortunately, there will be a next time when this happens. You know, others will learn from it, but the blood is ultimately on the hands of um, our governor. Tell me about that, because the good guy with a gun stops the bad guy with a gun is such a prevalent, prevalent storyline, prevalent belief. And, and yet we know from experience that it just doesn't work. No, even in, in Midland and Odessa, uh, yeah, lot, everyone, everyone. Um, um, there's a lot of people who have um, licenses to carry. And then, of course, since um, the last legislature, um, you don't even need a license to carry. People can just carry a gun around. And um when when the shooter this is the, that the shooter in Odessa was just running around on the road shooting random people with AR15s and and there were several people who had guns and they said they couldn't they couldn't they they, they it was just that the 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 AR15 the rounds were coming so quickly they couldn't even determine where to shoot at you know they couldn't they couldn't shoot back because it was just too much firepower coming at them. They just had to duck and hide and they didn't even know where it was coming from. And so, and that, and now we, we have trained police officers and they had the long guns and, you know, they were outshot by this dude. And um, obviously, you know, some of it obviously is a, it's human nature to be scared of someone, you know, who's, who's shooting an AR-15 at you and who has body armor and yet this week, the one thing we haven't heard anyone say, <laughs> at least not Senator Ted Cruz or Governor Greg Abbott, they've acknowledged just about every other possible uh, reasoning for this for this horrific tragedy. The one thing they have not talked about is why guns combined with these issues are really what create the deadly situation. I think the police response in of itself was proof of that. Right. I mean, it's so scary. And and they and we so what this incident proved is that is that we can't really rely on law enforcement to protect our children either. So we're really just sitting ducks. We're all sitting ducks in Texas waiting to be shot. We, we can't rely on 911 anymore. That's all you can do because I have no hope that this is going to get better until we get a change of leadership. I have no hope that this is not going to happen again. I mean, this is, I, I expect, I expect some sort of horrific tra- tragedy within 30 days of this, because I think there's going to be some copycat person. I mean, thank God schools are going to be out, but, you know. It's going to be a tough Memorial Day week, and I guess it's normally a time to celebrate the arrival of uh, of summer, and it's not going to feel that way in Texas this weekend. It isn't. I everyone. There's so many people I know, are my other attorneys in my office. It's so unimaginable when you let yourself go there. And I, I do, I think about those, those children being locked in their classroom, ca- doing what they're told to do, calling 911 and no one came to save them. And, and their last moments 
are seeing their classmates getting killed and then them getting killed. Yeah, I mean, blown away. And and their teacher. There's nothing in Greg Abbott's press conference from yesterday or Ted Cruz's or any of their eyes that seem to have any compassion. They it's not like they're hollow. It's like they're hollow. And I don't know how you can say you're a leader in Texas and not take some responsibility to blame it on. And, and, and the irony, you know, he says that he they always blame it on mental health issues. And Texas, even though we're one of the richest states in the nation, we don't have any mental public mental health access here. There's none. My, the only way my clients can get access is if they if they get arrested and go to jail. That's the only public access in Midland. It's just really, it's really horrific. And I want the world to know that, that, and then there's good people in Texas. There are, and they, and we're horrified and we're crying. Well, Sarah Spector, thank you so much for your, for your time tonight. I appreciate your insight and thanks for sharing that with our listeners. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. 